felt over the years, uh, you know, largely through uh, private uh, company-led growth. I mean, the government's played a huge role, and uh, the role of the government isn't given adequate uh, acknowledgement by most people. But nevertheless, I mean, it is at this point, uh, you know, this is nothing new, obviously, you know, hugely dominated by 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 corporate interests. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what the United States economy, how it operates. Uh, China, uh, you know, since 1949, I mean, was uh, was literally a communist country, um, meaning in a, in a uh, serious one in the sense of, uh, you know, there were communist countries and then there were communist countries. Uh, there was private enterprise and in uh, to varying degrees in Eastern Europe, say, but in China, they pretty much nationalized everything. So everything was owned by the government. There was no banking system. There was no um, manufacturing system outside of uh, uh, what was owned by the government. I, I didn't live here at the time. I understand there were, you know, kind of black market restaurants and that kind of stuff, but I mean, it was overwhelmingly, 99%, I would guess, uh, run by the government. Well, since that time, uh, they've privatized a fair percentage of the economy. Uh, but, you know, the, the estimates are somewhere between, you know, 50 and 60% of the economy is still literally owned by the government, and a fair chunk is dramatically influenced by government policy. Uh, in the U.S., uh, corporate policy is um, Washington is a huge player in, in corporate America, but uh, I mean it's just uh, vastly, vastly different. So yes, on the continuum, I would say you know you put North Korea and Cuba, I guess, at the at that one end, um, and what would be on the other end? Uh, Singapore or Hong Kong, I guess, would be. Though Hong Kong is literally part of China, it is treated in a different fashion. You know, say Singapore on the other, and you'd have China pretty close still, even with all the opening and all the reforms. You know, far on the weight on the weight of uh, state uh, influenced and state owned, with the U.S. You know, way toward uh, if we're making it left and right, way toward the right on uh, corporate influence. Again, it neither is a, uh, China is certainly not a state-owned uh, economy anymore, and the U.S. is certainly not a free market economy in the sense that uh, people usually use that term. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a great, great, great difference between the two. And at least from, from the, the perspective of, of the United States looking at China, you know, that great influence of the state, if not ownership, um, causes a lot of problems, right, in a number of different areas from, um, sure. you know, subsidies to um, loans. And, and did you recently write a, a piece about that, um, you know, the the role of the state and, and, and the complaints, basically, right, from, from Western um, economies and, and companies. Yeah, yeah, I mean, in one sense, I was just thinking this out loud as you were talking, I mean, in both countries, here's something that's similar, in both countries, 
there is a lively debate about the role of the government uh, in the future of the economy. In the U.S., you see it. Uh, you see it every single day in the presidential debate. I mean, there. They. I mean, by the scale of uh, of Europe or or certainly China. I mean, there. The differences between Romney, uh, the Romney view of the economy and the Obama view of the economy are pretty small. Uh, mm -hmm. The differences, but nevertheless, by the context of the United States, it's a pretty substantial difference as to you know, how big a role the government ought to play in the future of the economy and in trying to get the American economy revived. In China, there is a comparable uh, debate. There is no election, of course, uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't different views as to um, how big a role uh, the state ought to play. The state, the role of the state was declining until the, uh, until the global financial crisis in 2009. Uh, China relied tremendously on their ability to manipulate, manipulate its pejorative word, and their ability to use state power to uh, revive and revive their economy and essentially avoid the downturn. Um, but now there's a question of whether, by relying so much on the state, they have made it more difficult for them to reform reform in the sense of uh, move to a market, more of a market orientation, uh, move in that direction because the state uh, influence is greater and the power of the state-owned companies themselves is, are greater. Um, and yes, I mean, from the U.S. perspective, sure. I mean, American companies and Western companies and Chinese private companies do complain about preferences given to state-owned firms. I mean. We, we think of, we being Americans, think of state-owned firms as, oh gosh, you know, as some kind of independent entity that is dominated or literally owned by the state, and it's seen as kind of a bad thing. I mean, that's, I think most Americans would think of it as not the way things ought to be. Although America does have state-owned companies, like the post office and Amtrak, and I think General Motors is still 51% owned by the U.S. government. <laughs> right. Um, um, but, you know, it's a minor part of the economy. Um, but I think in China they look at it differently. I mean, yes, they are independent in the sense that they look to make profits, um, which is different from the way it used to be. But on the other hand, they're sort of like a department of the state as well. I mean, it would be what we would, might consider a subsidy you know, the Chinese leaders might consider um, funneling of money through a department, as if we, they were funneling money through the Commerce Department or the Energy Department. It's not quite the same, but it doesn't have the same pejorative. It's not seen as a pejorative in China to say something is state-owned. In fact, for younger people, I'm told, the number one place they would like to work are state-owned companies because they're seen as more secure. Oh. Uh, which is pretty amazing given uh, how vibrant uh, some of Chinese private enterprises are. And the, I think the, still the impression that most people have in the West that, uh, you know, China's Wild West capitalism in some ways, which, which it is, but if you are a young person coming out of the best universities, the, in, in general, you're aiming for a job on the state-owned firm as opposed to their version of Silicon Valley. It's a very different uh, view of the world. 
that is that uh, that is surprising to me. Um, so, you clearly for the last decade, China has coexisted within the WTO with the United States and the other countries that have very different philosophies about the role of government. Do you think that that coexistence can continue, or do you think that there will eventually be, that it'll eventually come to a head where the, the international trade system can't work with these very, very different philosophies? No, I think I think BWTO in this instance plays a very important and positive role. Um, I think on, for one thing, first of all, I think people overplay the power of the WTO. Okay. Um, it is still a largely a, a system that works largely by cooperation, um, and it has a very difficult time in, of imposing it. It can't, frankly, impose its will. So it depends entirely on the goodwill of the members. So, yeah, I mean, the U.S. and China are very different systems. Uh, Russia is getting into the WTO. It has a different system. Um, what else? Uh, Europe. I mean, France. Uh, France is not China, but France has a lot more state-owned companies than the U.S. does and has a uh, uh, more positive view toward um, subsidies than the U.S. government generally does. Um, but that's why you have international organizations. Does the UN work? Eh, not so great, but it does some useful things. They have very, very different systems, and and uh, the UN used to have, when the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union, there were even, <clears throat> excuse me, greater differences among the members than there are within the WTO now. Uh, just um, parenthetically, when the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union, none of the communist countries were members of the WTO. <clears throat> so, I mean, it's not unusual for an international organization to have members with very different views and very different uh, systems, political, military, or um, uh, economic. I mean, the WTO isn't an alliance. It's a, it's a, it's a system that tries to reach common rules and understandings and and then have the different countries live up to them. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so does it do a great job? No. I mean, but does it play a useful role? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, um, it's amazing to me, given that the WTO has no power whatsoever and can't force a country to do anything, that countries generally um, live up to their obligations under the WTO. If, uh, if the U.S., if the U.S. is found to be at fault in the WTO case, there was one, and I forget the name of the, um, the tax, but one that required the United States Congress to repeal a, a, a tax and replace it with a different kind of tax that had to do with foreign corporations. Well, you know how hard it is to get the U.S. Congress to do anything yeah. uh, when it comes to taxes. And this is a foreign entity saying the U.S. has to change its rules? I mean, you know, Congress laughs at, at foreign entities telling it what to do. But, in fact, the U.S. did actually change its rules. I mean, it's, it's quite impressive. Um, and similarly, when China's self-held found at fault, <clears throat> they have a pretty good record of changing their rules to comply. Now, there's lots of complaints, legit complaints, 
that they do the bare minimum and, you know, and so <clears throat> they'll do the bare minimum and, you know, and then there'll be another fight about something else, which is probably a lot to that. Or they will also uh, country a, I can't think of a particular example. Oh, there was an example. So here's a particular example. So the U.S. Um, sued China over or imposed tariffs on Chinese imports of tires. And mm-hmm. under the WTO um, agreement between the U.S. and China, which meant that the U.S. agreed to let China into the WTO, meaning it voted it voted um, uh, in favor of it. And it's basically a, a system that works by consensus when it comes to enter, letting new members enter. So one of the conditions was if imports from China, quote-unquote, surge, if they, really a lot of them come in. <clears throat> doesn't have to be anything unfair about it. doesn't have to be the low market prices. doesn't have to be the subsidies. Just the, just the, the volume of it um, surges past a certain point, and I feel what that is. Well, the U.S. can impose tariffs. That was what the Chinese agreed to. Um, that's not free trade, but that's the deal. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, you know, in, in tires that happened, the U.S. imposed sanctions. And the Chinese took it to the WTO. They lost, and they should have lost, really, because, again, it was a deal that they signed. But at the same time, they uh, then uh, imposed tariffs, I think it was, on, on, on U.S. chicken parts, I believe it was. Right. Um, you know, and then <clears throat> sounds kind of silly because it's chickens and sort of who cares, but, but, you know, to chicken producers, that was a big deal. Um, so that's not kosher. They, they shouldn't do that. That's not the way the system's meant to operate. Um, so there are things where one can criticize China quite a bit for, but imagine the system without uh, without the WTO. I mean, all, it, China would be would be able to do anything it wanted to do without any recourse by the United States other than unilateral sanctions. So. Um, before the WTO was formed, there was a much weaker predecessor organization called the GATT, where the if you were found to be in violation of a GATT rule, you, the country that was found in violation, had to agree to um, to the finding against you, which of course a lot of countries just didn't. And there was you were within your rights to just reject it. That changed with the WTO, where you're supposed to either change your rules to comply or pay a penalty, uh, essentially allow the imposition of tariffs worth a comparable amount. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, if we went back to the old system or you scrapped the WTO, you'd have individual countries fighting individual countries. And it would be much more politically fraught. It would be much more a system of big guy, big country versus little country where the little country had absolutely no recourse. Um, we're talking about China versus the U.S. Those are pretty comparable powers economically at this point. But, um, you know, it's not the only countries involved here. I mean, what happens when it's, a, you know, a small country and it thinks the U.S. is, or China is acting um, improperly? I mean, they do have recourse to the WTO. They can actually get things changed. Without the WTO, the U.S. and China would laugh at them. I mean, there would be no, there'd be no way that uh, they'd have any recourse. So again, do I think it's perfect? Not remotely. Is it, you know, barely effective? Yeah, probably. But I think it it has um, some value, particularly also. 
So another thing about the U.S. and China, when the U.S. was having so many trade disputes with Japan, um, there was never, and that was pretty, I mean, I covered that. That was, you know, pretty nasty, mostly in the U.S. Um, there was the same fear that uh, Japan was the rising power, was going to pass the U.S. Uh, people, it was at a, at a tough time economically in the U.S., very similar fears that there are about China, but there never was a fear about Japan that it would be a military adversary or a competitor. That was never an issue. Mm -hmm. Same thing with, with Canada. The U.S. has endless trade disputes with Canada. Nobody notices them because, you know, it's the U.S. and Canada. You know there'll be a deal. I mean, it's just a matter of negotiating over this and that. But when it's the U.S. and China, you really don't know what the future holds. I mean, they're... They're competitive in the economic sense, like the U.S. was versus Japan. <clears throat> but in addition, there is that, that overriding question of will the U.S. Um, uh, face, in a military fashion, uh, a threat from China or vice versa. I mean, they look, they, believe me, they look at it equally, if not more so, from the U.S. Um, quote-unquote encircling China. They're very concerned about all that. Well, you know, you have these trade disputes, and they just make things they make things worse. So um, I think the WTO try keeps something of a handle on that as well. And and again, not remotely perfect, but um, I think it's useful. Okay. So what would you say to to the people who who say that <clears throat> policymakers in the United States? need to get tougher on China, whether it's in, in bringing cases to the WTO where China has violated its commitments or, or in other ways. Um, why, why, why haven't, I mean, why don't we see more of that? I guess, you know, proverbial you know, getting tough constant, on China. It's a constant thing politicians say. I mean, I think the U.S. has been very aggressive in bringing cases. Uh, could they bring more? Sure. Um, I don't know what, when you mentioned other ways. I'm not sure what the other ways would be. Oh, we can talk about that in a second. But, I mean, yeah, could they bring more cases? Sure, they could bring more cases. Um, there's always a an issue. It's like um, Robert Reich, the former Labor Secretary under Clinton, before he became that, uh, wrote a book, which I consider a great book, uh, the title of Who is Us? And the question that he was posing is, when you mean us, Americans, who are you actually referring to? And so, not ethnically, but do you mean the, the general population? Do you mean corporate America? Do you mean the government? I mean, who exactly are we discussing? When it comes to trade cases, basically what you're talking about are corporations. I mean, the U.S. trade representative is essentially corporate counsel for corporate America when it comes to bringing uh, cases against or unfair this or that against another country. Um, so why don't they bring more cases? Well, they're bringing a lot of them, A. And secondly, there's a cost to bringing a case. So you bring a case, particularly against a country like China, but it could be any other country, any other powerful country. You bring a case against China, well, they don't like that, and vice versa when you know they bring a case against us. So can that have commercial... Um, retaliation? Sure it can. I mean, in, in, in an informal fashion? Yeah, definitely. Um, so then the Chinese are not adverse whatsoever 
you know, to playing hardball in that way. And then again, flip it on the other side. So China brings just, you know, let's say it happened the other way. Well, China might have plenty of things it can complain about what the U.S. does. Would that, uh, how would that engender, what would that, what would Americans feel about that? I mean, Americans who are concerned about China uh, are quite worried about it to start with. Would, would that mean that, um, you know, governments might tilt against China when it comes to procurement or when it comes to investment in the U.S.? Sure, it might. Um, so I think, you know, you don't want to bring every possible case that you can. You want to bring the most important ones. The other factor in there is, you know, USTR is a pretty small agency. You can make it bigger. But, I mean, how much of your time do you want to spend, again, essentially representing uh, corporate America and in these kind of cases? So, yes, you could bring more cases. Uh, yes, every politician, doesn't matter whether Democrat or Republican, always complains that they're not bringing enough cases, except when they're in the government and then they see it's not so easy. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, other measures. Well, what do other measures mean? I mean, the U.S. is trying to put together a, um, a trade deal with Pacific nations that would set rules governing uh, behavior of state-owned enterprises, among other things. Um, but, uh, and it's aimed, I mean, China's not a party to these talks, in it, but it's without a doubt aimed at China. The idea is you get um, Australia and uh, Malaysia and maybe even Japan to agree to a set of rules. Maybe they become international norms and China, you know, follows them. I don't think it's a great idea, personally. Um, uh, China's not stupid. They know that these are very important rules that are being uh, determined and they're not at the, they're not part of the discussion. So why would they then follow rules that were set essentially by the United States in negotiations where it has immense leverage over small countries. But that, that is another, quote unquote, another way of, of dealing with it, trade deals of one kind or another. Um, I mean, for better or worse, and I think it's, you know, generally for better, um, the U.S. can't bring, I mean, it has dumping cases and, and subsidy cases, but, but they, um, there are limits to what you can do with those. But generally, the U.S. can't take unilateral, unilateral action on trade against another country, um, bec which they used to do, uh, because they gave up that right under the WTO. In, in exchange for a WTO dispute resolution system that has power, and power, again, in the sense that people listen, that countries actually listen to it, not power in the sense that it has some enforcement mechanism there's no trade army or anything. <laughs> um, that was the deal. Uh, I think generally it's been a reasonably good deal. Okay, and and yeah, I mean when I when I said other measures, I was primarily thinking of the commerce, you know, imposing anti-dumping or countervailing duties. Yeah, that they can do at any time, yeah. and that's I mean the U.S. government can do that, but that's that is the avenue that's open to uh, private companies to do that, or even, I guess, unions do it sometimes as well. But um, when it comes to bringing a case before the WTO, the U.S. government has to decide yeah. uh, on doing that. Okay. So do you think that protectionism has increased in the last five or six years? Um, since the global financial crisis, 
probably marginally. Uh, I think the bigger surprise is that it hasn't increased more given how bad things are all over the world. <clears throat> and even in China where it's growing at the moment at 7.5%, which sounds huge by any other standards, that's down considerably from what they're used to. Um, and then you have the U.S. and Europe where, well, Europe where things are horrible and Japan where it's only slightly better in the U.S. where it's only slightly better than that. Mm -hmm. So given how difficult the situation is, you would have expected more of it. But yeah, probably over the last, since 2009, yes, there's probably been some, uh, an increase in it. Okay. So when, when we started talking, you talked about the fact that state power in China had been declining in, until the financial crisis. Um, do you see with the the coming change in um, political power in China, do you see either state power increasing further or declining again? How do you, how do you see the um, politics affecting that next year? Yeah, I mean, it's a big, it's honestly, nobody knows. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a big unanswered question. It's one of the biggest questions that they face. You know, which direction do they go? Do they push toward more market-oriented reforms? Do they, um, do they, I don't think they'll reverse themselves, but do they essentially go slow? Um, I mean, one difference between having an election and not having an election, uh, Romney wins, and presumably you'll have a different direction in, in U.S. policy. It depends, of course, on what happens with the Congress as well. Um, you know, we know who the next leaders of China are. We have no clue as to whether they'll um, operate in a different fashion. I mean, one thing to remember that's very different uh, in China and the U.S. and the systems is, so China, even though there's a, a president or <clears throat> and a vice president, president and a premier, and the president is also, more importantly, the Communist Party chief. So there's the Communist Party chief, the head of the party and the head of the government. And... Um, uh, so they'll be leaving, and there'll be a new head of the party and a new head of the government. But those two guys, Xi Jinping with the party and uh, Li Keqiang probably almost definitely with the premiership, the government, um, have been in the top panel, uh, the top governing panel in China called the Politburo Standing Committee already. And that panel operates, um, as far as people can tell, by consensus. Uh, so, yeah, the president uh, is out there and probably is more powerful, surely is more powerful and, and the premier, but, it's, but they negotiate with other members of those panels. So it's possible that what we're seeing in China now reflects very much what the, um, the new leaders will, um, very much what the new leaders think because they've been involved uh, up to their eyeballs in, in producing the policies that are um, being, uh, that are in place now mm -hmm. and the policies that are set for the next five years in the five-year plan. It's really, really difficult to tell. Okay. All right. Well, how, how have you enjoyed living in Beijing? Oh, it's been generally a lot of fun. Good. Uh, I've been a Washington reporter for a long time. This is another capital. In some ways, things are very similar, but <laughs> there are some ways where it's just absolutely different and very, very interesting. Yeah. Do you speak Mandarin? Uh, a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <Not too. laughs> 
spread around in supermarkets and taxi kits. Right, right. Well, Bob, I really appreciate um, I really appreciate your time this morning. Sure. Is there anyone else that you think I, I need to talk to in particular or any other resources off the top of your head that I, I need to make sure I check out? And when it comes to U.S. China or, or more generally? Yeah, well, generally on this subject of, you know, foreign trade policy, industrial policy, WTO. Well, I mean, in terms of experts, I mean, you're nice to call me an expert. But I mean, I'm a reporter, and so I'm a reporter who's covered this for a long time. So that's my expertise. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but in terms of people who study it, you know, their whole lives, uh, I think the two I would go to, uh, one on either side, would be um, Gary Huffstauer at the Peterson Institute, who is just like an encyclopedia when it comes to trade. He's really remarkable, and he's very much a free trader. Um, and on the other side, Lori Wallach at um, Public Citizen, who has um, studied uh, WTO law and cases you know, as diligently as anybody in Washington and is very, very knowledgeable. And she is very much, um, uh, uh, what's the, I forget what the politically correct way of saying this is, um, uh, not a free trader. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, we try not to use fair trader because I think that's even, a, I try not to use it because I think it's even a, a more meaningless term than free trader. I don't think it means anything. Um, but she doesn't, she's definitely not a person who uh, believes in free trade. But she would, uh, but calling somebody a protectionist is considered, you know, um, what's the word? I mean, it's, it, has, it, it is definitely seen as, you know, a um, pejorative. And so, and, and that wouldn't be fair to her. But she, she, she doesn't believe in free trade. Okay. And, you know, more of, more of a unilateralist, I guess you would say. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it seems like no one wants to be called a protectionist, even if they're no. really, you know, on that, within that camp. Even, even people will. who actually do believe in protection. Right. I mean, there is a case to be made for protection, but, but it is seen, though, you know, like, you know, like 40 years ago calling somebody a communist or something. It just, it, it's a meaningless term, and it just means you're... You're you're just trying to tar somebody with a with a you know a, a bad image. Mm -hmm. Right.